Uh, if you've looked ahead in your bulletin, we are going to look at the Lord's Prayer out of Luke today. Uh, Matthew's version is certainly the more familiar version of the Lord's Prayer to most people. Uh, it's found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I believe you guys camped out there for a few weeks in the fall. Uh, however, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his followers to pray in contrast to the hypocrites and Gentiles who often prayed for show or prayed long, senseless prayers. And I think of uh, my days in high school youth group, and for some reason in that awkward time, there was this correlation between whoever prayed the longest was tagged with the title of Most Holy. And I can assure you that among the many reasons that I was not considered holy in high school, my prayers were, were not one of them. Uh, I usually prayed very short, brief prayers, if I prayed at all in youth group. Uh, We find Luke's version, however, of the Lord's Prayer in a different context. In the Gospel of Luke, the prayer life of Jesus is underscored. And we frequently see Jesus withdrawing to pray in Luke's Gospel. No matter how many demands there were on his time, Jesus would still devote time to prayer. He would still take time to retreat and to get away to pray to his heavenly father. And do you wish that you could have listened in on those prayers? Do you ever wonder what Jesus spent all that time praying about? Well, I think the disciples wondered that too. And in fact, I believe that it is that, at least in part, Jesus' own habit of prayer that prompted the disciples to ask Jesus for instruction on how to pray. Moreover, this is the only time in the Gospels that the disciples directly request teaching from Jesus. And of course, we don't know the exact content of all Jesus' prayers, but we do see the pattern here in the Lord's Prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that the prayers we see Jesus pray in the Gospels all fit this pattern. So let's look together at the text. Uh, It's Luke 11, 1 through 4, and you can find it in your bulletin or in your Bible. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we, forgive, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship you as your people this morning. Thank you that we are able to worship you through song, through prayer, and Father, now through your word. Father, would you illumine our hearts that we might more deeply understand what you have to say to us in your word this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to a text that is as familiar as the Lord's Prayer, there is a temptation to gloss over it, to speed through it. When I was preparing a sermon, it took me a couple of days to really slow down and get into the text. My mind would just race through it. And I would dump everything that I already know into the text without pausing to slow down and meditate. 
And so perhaps you don't really need to learn anything new this morning, but maybe need to be refreshed by its simplicity or even be convicted about your own prayer life. So from the outset here, we see not only how we are to approach God, but we see the kind of prayer that this is to be. It's to be a prayer for the believer. And even though we commonly know it as the Lord's Prayer, because Jesus, as our Lord, taught us to pray it, the prayer could also be coined the Disciples' Prayer. And on referring to God as Father, Luke Timothy Johnson notes, in all the more than 165 examples found in the Gospels, except in Matthew 23, 9, Jesus is always engaged in teaching the disciples. The use of this title as an address for God was thus reserved by Jesus exclusively for himself and his followers. So this is not a prayer for the unbeliever. God is not their father. In fact, in John 8, Jesus even goes so far as to say that the devil is the father of the Pharisees, for they did not accept Jesus, whom God had sent. And besides, it would sound kind of ridiculous for the unbeliever who says, I don't believe in God, and your God is not my God, to call God Father, and then to invite the coming of his kingdom. Nor is this just some prayer for seekers, or a beginner's prayer that we hand to young Christians saying, here, pray this until you've really learned to pray on your own. And once you've graduated from praying this prayer, you can go on to more sophisticated and spiritual prayers. One commentator says it this way, Although we are given the Lord's Prayer in our baptism to be our own prayer, a special personal gift for each one of us, this prayer is not just the spiritual version of the baby's mug and spoon set, though it is surely that as well. It is the suit of clothes designed for us to wear in our full maturity. And most of us, putting the suit on week by week, have to acknowledge that it's still a bit big for us, that we still have some growing to do before it'll fit. So that is to say the Lord's Prayer is not a less spiritual prayer, nor is it a prayer that we ever outgrow. It's a prayer for believers, and it's a prayer for the church. One of the great privileges of my job is that I get to hang out with students from a lot of different cultures, which means they also come from a variety of religious backgrounds. And for many, the idea of relating to a truly knowable God is a completely foreign concept. There's a lot you can know about God, but you can never know exactly where you stand with him. You just need to do enough right or enough good, and hopefully you'll end up on his good side. In Islam, for example, there are 99 names for Allah, and Father is not among that lengthy list of names. There's no real hope for intimately knowing or being known by God. But that's not true for us. Through Jesus, through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we know God as Father. God reveals himself to us in one of the most intimate relationships possible, as that of a father. 
So considering this is a prayer for believers, why is it significant that we approach God as Father? Why not just address Him as God or as Lord? Well, certainly those are titles that are appropriate to Him, but Scripture here demonstrates that He desires for us to come to Him as Father. You see, especially in the ancient Near East, meaning and relationship are attached to one's name. It's more than a label. It's who a person is. And that's a bit foreign to us. We typically don't attach quite as much meaning to names as other cultures often do. Uh, When you meet an international student from China or from the Middle East, when they tell you their name, they will almost immediately tell you, what their name means. Their name is essential to who they are. And there's often an expectation that one is to live in accordance with their name. They must live in a manner that is consistent with the name that they've been given. And commenting on the name, Martin Lloyd-Jones states, it means all that is true of God and all that has been revealed concerning God It means God and all his attributes, God and all that he is in and of himself, and God and all that he has done and all that he is doing. Or to say that another way, Philip Graham Ryken puts it like this. God's name is much more than a title. In biblical usage, the name of God refers to all that God is. For example, when King David says, We trust in the name of the Lord our God, In Psalm 20, verse 7, he is not putting his confidence in a particular combination of Hebrew letters. On the contrary, he is trusting in God himself in all his glory and grace. God's name represents who God is. All of who God is is wrapped up in his name. However, it's not just who he is that's wrapped up in his name, but also how we are to relate to him. So if in teaching us something about who God is as Father, Jesus is also teaching us something about ourselves. He's teaching that you are a son or daughter of God. It not only reveals who God is, but who we are in Christ. In addressing him as Father, you are coming to him as a son or daughter. This sounds simple, and in a certain sense, it really is simple, but... Don't let that thought pass you by. Every time you approach God as Father, you are doing so as a son or daughter. And that means you come to him first as son or daughter, not as businessman, not as doctor, not as lawyer, not as mommy or daddy or husband or wife. Your worth is not defined by your successes or failures in these roles or responsibilities. Your relationship with the Father is defined by the reality that you are sons and daughters made possible by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you ask many young boys growing up in a healthy environment what they want to be when they grow up, they often will answer you with the same occupation that their father does. And of course, you've always got the planners and the dreamers, but a large number will answer with what their daddy does. However, when I worked for an inner city ministry in West Dallas, 
many of the young boys did not know their father. They weren't in their lives or they had never met them. And a typical answer that I would get from these young men is that they either aspired to be a basketball star or a musician. And there's certainly nothing inherently wrong with either one of those occupations. However, for only one or two of them, that may have been a real possibility if they truly applied themselves. But it probably wasn't going to be an option for most. Now, if I decided to go and try out for the Mavericks, no one would think that is a good idea. They certainly need some help in their hopeful upcoming playoff run, but I am certainly not the solution to that problem. Or if I started singing right here in front of you, you all would make an early exit and be on your way to an early lunch. So why would these young men answer this way? And there may be many different reasons, but I think at the core, it's because they don't know who their father is. Not knowing who their father is, not having a healthy model in their lives, they aim for something else, even if it's not a possibility or they have no clue how to get there. So they aim for what the culture says is the picture of success. So my question for you this morning is, do you know who your heavenly father is? Do you know him as father? Do you rejoice in the thought of calling him father? And do you delight in the fact that you are son or daughter if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you know him as father? The son reveals the father to us in his word. He is reliable and he is trustworthy. And as children, we are dependent on our parents. Some things in life we can choose whether or not we want to depend or rely on. When you tire of eating at the same couple of restaurants over and over again and you want to try something new, you can drive around town and rely on your ability to randomly select a a restaurant based on name and curb appeal, or you can go to a resource like Yelp and look to the opinions of many people who have dined at that restaurant before when you want to venture out and try something new. Uh, We can choose whether or not we want to rely on GPS or our own intuitive sense of direction to reach our destination. I usually try to go on intuition while my wife uh, kind of anxiously sits there next to me with the map pulled up on her phone and Sadly, I'd be lying to you if I said that we never had to defer to her phone. In other areas, we are dependent whether or not we acknowledge or realize it. We said earlier that we approach God the Father as a son or daughter. Well, being a son or daughter implies dependence. In some ancient societies, the patriarch of the family would maintain absolute control over the entire family until his death. He would be the ultimate authority over not only his children, but also his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I will not ask the ladies here for a show of hands on how many of you wish your father-in-law had absolute control over you and your children. So I'm thankful for that. Shortly before my son turned three years old, I remember thinking about how dependent he is on me and Sarah to accomplish his most basic needs in life. He couldn't put on his diaper at night. 
He couldn't bathe himself. He still can't open the fridge and cook dinner for us, though we long for that day. And a while back, he was at that phase where he wanted to do, he wanted to assert some independence. He wanted to do everything on his own. For example, when getting dressed, he would take and grab his pants out of my hand and try to put them on himself. And after a while, when he realized he couldn't put them on, he began to get frustrated, and then he would slowly hand them back to me. And the more he realizes how dependent on me he is, the more he begins to trust me. International students are often very dependent when they first arrive here in the U.S. to study. They don't know where to buy things. They don't know how to get around town. They need help furnishing their apartments. And sadly, they are often taken advantage of in the process because they're vulnerable, because they don't know, because they're newcomers. Church, we have an incredible opportunity to show them the love of Christ by welcoming them and by helping to meet their needs when they first arrive in Dallas. They are very dependent. You see, there's a difference between dependence and trust. We can be dependent without trusting. We're dependent on God whether or not we are trusting him. Even non-believers are dependent on God, but they do not acknowledge it. So think with me, for example, about the request to provide for your daily bread. It's not a request to provide for the finer things in life. It's not a request to provide for your daily USDA prime ribeye, but to provide for your most basic necessities in life. And this affirms to us that we are totally dependent on God for even our most fundamental needs. Last week at our Bible study, a student brought up a concern about a friend of hers. She was worried that her friend only trusted in God insofar as God would bless her according to her own desires. And isn't it easy for us to fall into this pattern? Isn't it easy for us to think that we just take care of all the little mundane things in life and we'll go to God for the really big stuff? We'll go to God for the important decisions, for the big decisions we need to make or when we really feel like we're at our wit's end. And if we don't depend on the Lord for the seemingly basic things, will we truly depend on him in our relationships, in our work, or even as we seek to raise our children? I fear that we are most prone to depend on ourselves in our strengths. When we feel gifted in a certain area, we are less likely to rely on God. And maybe it's that you feel that you are really gifted at your job, or you are great at serving others, or you have this unusual ability to relate to just about anyone. But we need to remember that our strengths, too, are a gift from God. The more you pray and meditate on the Lord's Prayer, you can't help but to realize how dependent on Him you are. And through this, we are also reminded that he is completely trustworthy. God frequently invited Israel to trust him 
as their God, in part by reminding them of his name in light of what he had done for them in the Exodus. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the refrain is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. As we trust God, we look back to what he's already done as we trust in and anticipate what he will do. Come to him as a father who delights to give his children what they need to live on and what they need to enjoy fellowship with him. As we read on a little further in this passage in Luke, this is exactly what we learn. Verse 13 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So once again, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are a son or daughter. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eight fifteen through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we often learn to trust God as our Father, not just through his reliability, but also in the way that he deals with us in our own failings. So think with me for a minute about the prodigal son. He had plenty. He was safe with his father, but he wanted more. He wanted to strike out on his own. He wanted to live independently. And it's ironic, too, when you think about it, that his inheritance was not his own. It was not earned by him, but it was given to him by his father. And yet, after squandering his inherited wealth, when he realized what he had with his father and returned to him, his father welcomed him back, not as a hired servant, but as a son. He was ready to beg just to be treated as a hired servant. And instead, his father welcomed him home as a son, rejoicing and celebrating that he had returned. And it's difficult for many to understand God in this way, as Colin referenced a little bit earlier. Perhaps for some here, it's difficult because of a strained relationship with your own father. And for some, the father, the word father evokes a great sense of delight. But for others, it's a reminder of some deep, deep wounds that still need to be healed. And even still, when we reflect on him as father, what he has done, does do, and will do, we are convinced of his faithfulness, which leads us to deeper trust in him. I know this can be a bit of a difficult thing for our hearts to grasp, but coming back to the first petition, hallowed be your name, it beckons us to ask why the verb hallowed is passive in the original language. And hallowed can also be translated sanctified. You and I can't sanctify the Lord's name on our own. Every time we sin, it profanes God's name. I'm going to read a a bit of a lengthy passage here, much longer than our scripture reading for the day, but stick with me because it's rich and it speaks to what we're talking about. This is from Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. Therefore, 
Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It is the Lord who sanctifies his name by acting justly, by punishing sin. Yet, the good news is that in his unbelievable act of mercy toward you and me, he did this by placing the punishment that we deserve on his son so that we might be called sons and daughters, so that we might bear his name, so that we might know him as Father. But he doesn't just leave it there. He calls us to holiness. He doesn't just hide you away in a corner as if he were ashamed of you. He delights to use you for his glory. He calls us to bear witness to the world for his name's sake. He calls us to love justice and to practice mercy. He calls us to demonstrate hospitality to foreigners, to immigrants, to refugees. These are just some of the ways that we participate in sanctifying his name. We can't do this without help. Instead, he gives us the Holy Spirit to do so because we could never do this faithfully on our own. So why is it that we don't stop and pray more? Is it because we already think he knows our needs? Of course he already knows our needs and our hearts, even before we do. But that is neither a good nor biblical reason not to pray. When we look at the verses that follow this brief passage, we are reminded of what the Father's love for us is like. We should be reminded that the Father in heaven longs to hear from us Not because he doesn't already know our hearts or needs, but simply because he delights for his children to come to him in prayer. Now, I love when my son Haynes tells me about something that he just did, even if I just watched him do it. Last summer, when he was first learning to swim, he would often jump off the edge of the pool and swim just a little bit into my arms. And as soon as he would come up from underneath the water, he would exclaim, Daddy, I just jumped in. I just swam to you. And he said it as if I had been in another county when it had happened. And my response was not, yeah, no kidding, Haynes. How about you tell me something that I don't already know? Tell me something new. No, I love to hear the joy he has in coming to me as a father and telling me, what he's just done, 
even though we both know very well that I know what he's just done. And I even delight when he comes to me with his most basic needs. In his three and a half years of life, there hasn't been a morning that he's not needed nor been provided milk or orange juice. Before he could talk, we knew that he needed his cup of milk each morning when he woke up. And yet now that he can talk, he comes in, usually by busting through the door before we're ready to be awake, but comes in and asks for his milk or orange juice each morning. And I look forward to him asking for me to provide for his most basic needs. It brings me delight. Another reason I don't I believe that we don't spend enough time in prayer is the temptation to think that working harder will lead to greater success. And I don't profess to know anything about your prayer life, but I know what a struggle it is for many of my believing friends, and I know what a struggle that it can be for me. Only when we are fervent before the Lord in prayer do we begin to realize how dependent we are on him in our lives. It helps to keep us from the temptation of saying, I can do this on my own. I don't need help. I can do it all by myself. We do not need to come to him as hesitant or reluctant, but as bold and dependent. And going back to our friend Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. It is the highest activity of the human soul. Therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's spiritual condition. There is nothing that reveals the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. You will find that the outstanding characteristic of all the most saintly people the world has ever known has been that they have not only spent much time in prayer, but have also delighted in it. Now, earlier I said that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for believers. And I want to illustrate that thought just for a a minute as we close. Last July, we took some international students to the Park City's 4th of July Parade, which is quite a spectacle. Many of them had been in the States for less than a week at the time. And they were very excited to be in their new host country and to experience some of its traditions, customs, holidays, to learn about America. And after the parade finished, we walked over to the, to the nearby park for the town's 4th of July celebration. And in the middle of the celebration, everything stopped for a minute and the Pledge of Allegiance was recited. Now, had any of the students been familiar with the words of the pledge, it would have been silly for them to recite it. In fact, it would have been dishonest, for they are a citizen of another country and would be saying something that they don't truly mean. However, the pledge does have a lot of meaning for many people there. Especially on the 4th of July, it may conjure up emotions about the freedom that we enjoy often at the cost of the lives of others. So even more so, that is how the Lord's Prayer ought to be approached. It's not to be done casually, but it's a prayer that believers, those who are in Christ, can pray confidently, knowing that if your hope 
is in Jesus, you can approach God as Father. You can approach Him as Father because of the great cost to the Father in giving up His Son to the excruciating pain and cruelty of the cross. That because Jesus died and rose again, those who believe in Him might be reconciled to God. If this morning you don't know God as Father and Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to spend time reading His Word. Even take a moment during the Lord's Supper that we are about to celebrate and ask God to reveal Himself to you as Father. I'd encourage you to talk to the elders and pastors here at New St. Peter's or maybe to those who you came with today. His Word is true, and we can only know Him as Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. In the middle of Luke 10, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you today. And Christian, as you come to the table, be reminded that your Father in Heaven provides even for your most basic needs. As you partake of this meal, be reminded that Jesus himself is the bread of life. Be reminded that on account of his death and resurrection, our deepest need is met. That is, that we are reconciled to God, our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time this morning. Um, Father, thank you that you have revealed us to yourself so intimately that you are Father. Thank you that you did not spare your own son, Father, but gave him up to the cruelty of the cross and then raised him from the dead that we might know you as Father, that we might have eternal life. Father, I uh, confess that uh, no one would say that the most characteristic thing about me is that I'm a man of prayer, and I suspect that's true for many of us in this room this morning. Father, would you show us how deeply needy and dependent on you we are, and that that would drive us to come to you as a father. And Father, I thank you that you uh, invite us to your table. May we enjoy that fellowship this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.